Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to the world's life sciences expertise. I'm very excited to welcome Ivan Dimov, co-founder and CEO at Orca Bio. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ivan. Thanks, it's a pleasure. So to get us started, we'd love some context on your background and how you got to where you are today. Awesome, thanks. And I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and share some of our experiences. I guess I've always been fascinated by discovery, technology, and innovation. And that initially led me towards more of a researcher and academic career. You know, so I went through the standard steps of getting a PhD and I was a Stanford last. But what I realized pretty quickly on is that in sort of the academic setting, you spend a lot of time understanding nature and then you try to use some of that knowledge to figure out really smart solutions for some of the most pressing problems and needs that we might have as a society. And then you publish all that and it kind of stops there. And I've always been very frustrated about the fact that, you know, we might actually have a way to solve some of our problems, but somehow these solutions aren't getting implemented. They're just getting bogged down. And that's when I kind of came across this, what I see as an instrument, you know, a startup is a really cool and sort of efficient instrument that was developed over the last, whatever, 50, 60 plus years of translating some of those discoveries into society so they can have the impact. And that's where I started to, you know, fall more into the entrepreneurial side. Initially started off by founding a couple of research centers, more on the kind of robotics and hospital technology side. And then over time, started creating more companies and spinoffs. And, you know, here in the Bay Area, helped co-found Lucera Health, uh, which is the first company to get a, a molecular test for COVID at home that you can get in 15 minutes. And then moved on to Orca Bio, which is a cell therapy company focusing on precision cell therapies. And some of the first products are in terminal blood cancers. You know, it's been a phenomenal journey so far. Awesome. Thanks for that background. A couple of things that come to mind that you brought up, which is this notion of folks that are in their PhD programs have some really exciting discoveries, and then they're not able to do anything with them. I think the supporting ecosystem around founder-led biotechs has evolved quite a bit over the last several years. I'm curious what you're A, most excited by as it relates to that ecosystem for you know your story and that career path to become much more prevalent, because I think our industry needs it, but then also where you see opportunities. It's a great question. So I think, especially here in the Bay Area, the sort of critical mass of support structures just keeps expanding. It's just impressive. You know, it takes a village to build a company. The more the village that understands that, the better it is. And I've found that over the last 10, 20 years, it has just accelerated more and more. And I think it's spread even beyond the Bay Area now, where if you have a really interesting idea and you get people excited around that idea, you can get a lot of support with minimal sort of costs initially. And that's really critical because you need to break free from that initial barrier, right? This sort of momentum that's holding you back to get that terminal velocity where things just get so much momentum that you can really drive it forward. And you can get a lot done here with just a great idea 
without having to raise pretty much any money at all, with very minimal resources and just you know a lot of hard work, sweat and tears and getting people rallied around. And so I think that's really a key feature, plus the fact that you can get advice from other folks. Like I benefited enormously from being able to connect with folks who've done it before. And as I was going down that path, I could learn from other people's experiences. And you can get that you know, without any sort of ego, without any predetermined barriers. That kind of flow of support and connectivity has been critical. And I think that now that we have a lot more founders, a lot more people who have been through it multiple times, and they understand how important it is to give back to the community, they can mentor and teach other folks as they're coming out of university or wherever else, and they're wanting to go down this path. I think that's been another critical thing that I think has led to a ton of success in general, and I've benefited from this enormously. And I think that's what I'm really excited about. That's just been taking more and more speed. And I think opportunities going forward in the biotech space there's a bit of an education that needs to happen where people have to understand it's not just about the idea. It's a lot more about the hard work, the perseverance, and also this idea of being humble, meaning try to learn as much as possible from history, you know, be humble about it, but also know when some of the lessons from history just don't apply to you. You know, either extreme is bad. If you think like, I just have to be stubborn. And and if history says that I will fail, then I should always think on the contrary and I should not take any lesson from history. That's not good. But you also, you know, should understand like some things I can ignore from history that are not worth really taking in, but there's a bunch of other more nuanced pieces that I should probably look into and understand why things were the way they were. And how does that apply to my context? And if I'm humble and I lean on people and I learn from them and I truly modify my approach, combine it with some of the historical lessons, I think that generally creates the right environment for success. And if you just persevere, I'm sure you will achieve the ultimate goal and the ultimate success. That's wonderful advice. I'm curious, at the, at the last company that you were at, you were co-founder and CTO, I believe. What was that transition like for you to go from CTO to CEO? And, and what's surprised you about that shift? I think that when you're more on the technical side, it's a little bit more contained. It's more of a technical challenge and and somehow we're better prepared for those. I mean, those are still pretty big challenges, but it's sort of a more known space, especially if you come from academia and, and research. I think what surprised me most is as you transition into CEO, you have to really think a lot more about sort of human psychology of really connecting with people, understanding what motivates people, what drives people. And I, I mean, at all levels, right? People that you need to connect with advisors, connect with potential employees, and connect with investors as well, and understand how all of these different groups contribute, what are their own struggles and what are their own objectives, and how you can align all of these things and just sort of make them all point in the same direction. I think that was sort of the surprise that you don't do things for on a rational basis. Most of the time, you do them more on an emotional basis. And transitioning from that rational to emotional, to me, was kind of a bit of a surprise and a learning lesson. Yeah, I certainly agree. And I experienced something very similar. It's a great way to put it. So before we jump into Workabio and the work that you and your team are pursuing there, help us better understand the current landscape as it relates to terminal blood cancer patients, ALL, AML, et cetera, the limited treatment options and the resulting unmet need. Sure, sure. Happy to. So before I get into that, maybe I can give a bit of context of how we got there. I was at Stanford and, and working with a pretty exciting team there that included Irv Wiseman. And what really led me to start Orca was the fact that there seemed to be evidence out there 
that we knew how to solve some of these really big challenges in terms of cancer, certain types of cancers, but there was a limitation in terms of translating that to patients. And part of the limitation was on the technology side, like how do we manufacture some of these things? How do we build them in order to make a viable business and ultimately deliver them to patients? You know, normally you're always confronted with a brand new scientific problem, a brand new biological problem, and solving that is sometimes can be totally untrackable and you don't know how big the challenge will be. And you you don't know if you'll ever get us to a solution. But what really got us excited about Orca is that there had been experiences where we could sort of treat terminal cancer patients. And initially the first experience was with potentially breast cancer. There's very strong evidence suggesting that it can be done, but there was a limitation of how to roll it out and how to build out the right technology. And so we initially started working on the manufacturing and and high precision part in order to make it scalable. And then we very quickly realized that that problem seemed to be present across most of cell therapies. And most cell therapies, you can extract a lot more potency and efficacy, and you can control the safety a lot more if you had higher precision. And I think the best example of that was around bone marrow transplants. And it turns out that bone marrow transplants are currently the gold standard way of treating terminal leukemia patients, patients who have AML or ALL, and some of the other blood cancers or blood diseases like myelodysplastic syndrome or MDS. And, you know, it's an incredible approach where essentially you are replacing somebody's entire blood and immune system. And you're doing it in a moment where they've pretty much failed all other approaches, or they have a disease that's so severe that everyone knows they would just not respond to any other form of treatment. These are really sort of end-stage terminal patients that are basically going to die unless you do something. And it's sort of a you know, miraculous thing that, that happened maybe 50 years ago that they discovered this approach. And that's what's become the gold standard. But it, I guess it was so successful that it hasn't really changed in 50 years. It's kind of remained roughly the same. And one of the challenges around it is that it cures a decent number of patients, but there's a higher number of patients that don't get cured and ultimately die. So there's still a lot to do there in terms of efficacy. But in addition to that, the medicine or the approach itself is pretty damn toxic. It, it, it does kill 20, 30, 40% of patients. And so because of that, it's also been limited to these terminal cases, right? Where you're willing to take this kind of risky approach because there's a high chance you'll die from the underlying disease you have. And we felt that bringing in high precision and understanding the biology, which, you know, many decades people have been following deeply the immunology and biology here. And how do we really understand what's going on and what is driving the efficacy, what is driving the toxicity? And if we understand that science, we can now control it and modulate it. So that's the first big thing that sort of happened over the last several decades. And then the other piece was, okay, how do we translate these discoveries into a medicine that we can now deliver to patients? And one of the big challenges there was this idea of precision. How do I put in the right cells that will do the right job? And I leave the rest of the cells that they're going to do the toxicity and damage behind. And I think those two things just came together at the right time when we were building Orca. So we were really inspired to go after these challenges of bone marrow transplants because it was a pretty big unmet need. There was really nothing around the corner for these folks. And everyone essentially had to work with this compromise, right? Where on the one hand, we can give this approach, the bone marrow transplant approach, and we can cure patients. And if we want to cure more of them, we can give it with more intensity. But on the other hand, we're creating a bunch of damage to these patients. And sometimes damage is so great that we end up killing them from this toxicity. And if I pull back on the toxicity, then I have a lot less curative power. And so you're always like curing with a compromise. And even if you do cure, 
you end up generating a lifelong autoimmune disease like chronic graft versus host disease, you know, which is not that well known, but it's basically destroys your quality of life. It's sort of like surviving after a brain stroke, right? I mean, I can go into some of the symptoms, but it essentially is like an autoimmune problem that attacks your lungs and you have all these constant infections. It destroys some of your joints. You have a hard time moving. It stiffens the skin and some of the other connective tissue. So you have a hard time breathing. It destroys your ability for creating tears. So you have to use artificial tears all the time. It's hard for you to read. You can't drive in the more severe cases, of course. You're so sensitive to sunlight. You can't be exposed to sunlight. So you need to be always indoors. And a lot of patients live with guilt, meaning they feel sort of lucky that they were able to control the cancer for those who survive and, and get cured. But now they have to live this sort of fraction of what they used to be and this sort of more diminished form of existence. And they feel horrible about it, but they also feel guilty to complain about it because, you know, they should have been dead, but instead now they're alive with this long life problem. And it's sort of a, a, you know, a horrible trade-off to sort of have to decide between. And we really felt that now is a time, and we've learned a lot about the biology of these cells and how to regulate the environment around the cells that we put in these patients to essentially free them from this trade-off and from this compromise. That's great background. And so talk to us about how you're tackling this problem at Orca and the, and the underlying technology. We have two major innovations, two major sort of families of patents and technologies. One group of technologies is around the manufacturing piece and everything from novel architectures and machinery that includes you know, lasers to be able to deal with single cell precision and sorting and all the other layers on top of that to build out the entire manufacturing process as necessary with all the the GMP regulations and and restrictions. And the other big family, which is critical independently of manufacturing, is the basic biology and the science around how do you create the right environment in order to take T-cells, naturally occurring T-cells, and other immunological and blood cells, and activate them and get them to do the job you want them to do, At the same time, remove any toxic causing cells that can damage the patient and lead to death. And just to get a high level sense, we use healthy, naturally occurring blood and immune cells from a donor, and we collect somewhere around 100 billion cells. And normally when you do a regular transplant, you would just infuse those 100 billion cells into the patient. Instead, we take about a percent. So you remove 99% plus of the cells including a lot of the toxic cells, but we just take that really efficacious cure driving subset of cells of 1%. We create the right proportions of mixtures to create the right environment around them so that the cells can do the maximum job and get activated in the right way. And we get that proprietary combination and we infuse that into the patients. And the key is to essentially build a miniature immune system that has the goal of essentially jumpstarting a brand new blood and immune system. So we have some stem cells in there. So over time, these patients will have a brand new blood and immune system with all of its repertoire of cells, fully balanced and healthy. And we bring in T cells that have the job of destroying any residual cancer cells and ultimately driving a curative approach. At the same time, we have these cells protect you against infections, get these cells to help you fight off any bacterias and viruses and, and infectious agents which is really critical because you're going to go through a transition of time where you, where your own immune system is sort of erased and you're building up a brand new one and you need sort of immunity as quickly as possible. And then we also make sure that none of these cells can reject you 
and see your body as a foreign entity essentially and cause a sort of deadly autoimmune reaction, which is more commonly known as graft versus host disease. It's sort of a multi-function mix, which is sort of akin to a, a small immune system. And talk to us a little bit about you know, where you are from a company building perspective and also your pipeline. Great question. So we started in 2016, building out the company. We've been pretty fortunate to be able to build out a couple of different generations of this approach into different products. Our leading product is Orca T. And our second gen product is Orca Q. Between the first and second gen products, we've treated now about 270 plus patients, all terminal disease patients across the US. The leading product, Orca T, we have the most experience on, about 200 patients worth of data. Some of our longest follow up is now, I think, over five years, over six years now, actually. Generally, the results have been very surprising. We have seen really dramatic reductions in toxicities. And we've also seen really incredible reactions in terms of anti-cancer effects. And overall survival of our patients seems to be highly boosted. You know, we've gotten RMAT designation by the FDA. RMAT gives you similar privileges as breakthrough designation and fast track together. And we've, you know, very rapidly gone through the different cycles of drug development. We've recently launched our pivotal phase three study, which would be, I think, if, if successful, this would be the, the first time that we really bring something that fundamentally changes the way you treat these patients. There's really nothing that's ever been approved in this space. A bone marrow transplant, you know, from a regulatory perspective, has, was never really approved. We had to sort of find a whole new regulatory path for all of this. And that's, of course, been part of the details you have to work through. Fortunately enough, everything seems to have gone well enough. And we're now well on our path to getting the first ever approval in the space. Hopefully, in the next couple of years, we'll have the data for a BLA submission. Awesome. And tremendous progress since you and I last connected many, many years ago. As you've scaled the team over the last several years, risk is inherent in everything that we do in biotech. I'm curious how you approach communication of that risk to your team, right? Like invariably, you know, if you have five, six, well, only one out of every 5,000 assets actually makes it to market. Perhaps it's a two-part question is, how do you deal with the ups and downs as it relates to your team, but then also how you deal with it emotionally for yourself as a founder? Yeah, it's, it's a tough question. One of the things that we do is that we really try to make sure that everyone who comes into the company is really passionate about our common goal, so much so that we basically, at least the way I've seen it, is that if you bring in people who are really smart and who are really passionate on the fundamentals, that means we'll all be aligned with what we want to do. If people are very smart, kind of folks will know what needs to get done. And it becomes a little bit more of a distributed organization. Doesn't it need to be as sort of hierarchical and structured top down where everyone's micromanaged to the nth degree? Instead, it becomes sort of this dynamic team with multiple different expertise, all really interested in one goal. And that is save the patients and do that as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And do that with lots of passion, right? So much passion that you energize everyone around yourself. And when you get that kind of momentum, it becomes this sort of its own organism and it kind of figures out what needs to get done. And it becomes very dynamic because you can throw all kinds of unexpected things at this dynamic organism and it will adjust very quickly and it will figure out how to react. And what other factors do you think other than you humbly saying that you've been lucky have led to you know, not having all that many failures? in terms of just your approach for R&D? I mean, I think 
Part of it is that, like I mentioned earlier, learning from history. So one of the issues with biotech, and this is a general challenge, not just in biotech, but all innovation and technology for that matter. Whenever we as, as human beings discover something new, a new idea, a new concept, a new approach, we feel very energized about it. And we become overly exuberant about the implications of something and how quickly that something can be brought into the market and how much revolution it can generate around us. And if you look at history in general, you'll realize there's all these revolutions and all these excitements about things, and they don't really pan out initially. And then they sort of fall out because everyone thought they'll pan out, but they didn't. But then it goes the opposite. Like now everyone thinks that there's no value in any of these things until, of course, we rediscover it again 10, 20 years later with some differences and we we fall into that same cycle. We're sort of cognizant of all of that and try to bring a lot of the lessons from the past, from history of why things failed, why the people abandoned things. And if you have a very sort of cold calculated approach there, you can sort of avoid a lot of the pitfalls, right? And you can sort of pick on the things that will have the highest chance of success, especially if you go through which things failed, why did they fail? And you follow through the different lines of research that some of these, what I call giants in the field have it brought to us and maybe just brought it up to a publication level or some level of academic research, but haven't taken any further. We've sort of done a pretty deep dive before we actually go in full throttle into something and, and try to like invest too much into it to really bring as much as those lessons from history as we can, talk to as many of the experts as we can, and maybe also try not to stack too many risks on top of each other, which I know a lot of founders and early sort of researchers try to innovate on many, many different levels. We try to focus on one specific thing you innovate in and then just use whatever's already there in terms of infrastructure. Don't try to layer too many levels of innovation and ultimate risks. Try to be a little bit more one step at a time kind of approach. I think those two things have been somewhat useful for us when it comes to deciding what we get into and try to avoid some of the standard pitfalls and issues that that, you you, you get kind of sucked into. Great. And I'm sure you've learned a tremendous amount during your entrepreneurial journey over these last several years. For the benefit of our listeners, would love if you could reflect for a minute and think about, you know, what's one thing that you wish you could tell your younger self, knowing what you now know? That's a tough question, but a very good question. I would probably focus on perseverance And the fact that things just have a natural life cycle and that that's normal. And the key here is just not to give up and keep persevering. You know, it's sad to say, but there isn't a magical bullet. There isn't sort of this one piece of advice that will guarantee. And that's kind of the key to everything. I think just the fact that if you keep trying and keep believing in what what you're doing, but also be really smart about learning from the feedback you're getting. I think that the biggest lesson for me is that you don't get where you want to get to right away. So it's kind of a disappointment, but what's really inspiring is that, and I've seen it over and over, not just with myself, but a lot of my friends, if you persevere, you'll actually achieve what you set out to achieve. You'll probably achieve in a different way, but you'll achieve it. And you'll probably achieve even more than you ever thought you could. It's very surprising. And you always need luck in everything. You need hard work and luck together and you can't control luck. But the lesson that I have is that you don't need to control luck because as long as you persevere, sooner or later, you will be lucky and everyone will be lucky. So that's the key. The key is just hang in there. Of course, iterate, learn, improve, always evolve, but just persevere and you'll be lucky, right? You can sort of generate your own luck, so to speak, which was a bit of a surprise for me 
when I got started many years ago, I thought things get done much quicker. And I thought that, you know, I couldn't control a lot of things, which is true. I still know that, but I feel like if you persevere, everything you can't control will be controlled. Yeah, great. That was a wonderful advice. Thanks for sharing a little bit about all that you've learned and the exciting work that, that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Orca. Look forward to following your progress and have you uh, on again in the future. It's a huge pleasure. Thank you so much. And also congrats on the amazing show and all, all, all of your successes. I remember when we spoke many years ago and it's been a marvel watching you as well. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.